Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 37, and we're recording on Friday, January 24th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and filling in for Rebecca this week is Amanda Nelson. She's one of our fellow Book Riot editors and Food Riot editors. Uh, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're nervous, aren't you? It helps to say nervous. That It just helps to say it out loud. I am so nervous. <laughs> there you go. See, that's better. Doesn't that feel good just to say? It does. Uh, it's I like think, one of those Buddhist things, right? The word mortified. <laughs> mortified. Uh, and you're not drinking anything stronger than tea, which I salute you for. Um, giving it the old college try. Um, all right, so before we get into the week, we've got a few pieces of follow-up. Uh, the first one, I, I was shocked to learn last week, uh, for those of you listening to the show last week, that I was I got my fact about Harper Lee's royalty for To Kill a Mockingbird wrong. Um, I said on the show last week, and Rebecca and I talked about it, that she made $9,500 per month from To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, that turned out to be wrong by more than an order of magnitude, she makes $9,500 per day. That is so ridiculous. It's, I mean, and I should have thought about it because in the, the court documents that came out, she sells between 950,000 and 1.5 million copies of To Kill a Mockingbird a year, which comes out to a lot more royalties than, you know, whatever 10 times 12 is, uh, $120,000. So she does pretty, pretty well. <laughs> Who is buying 1.5 million copies of To Kill a Mockingbird well, every year? When Rebecca and I were talking about it, like, well, there's a lot of school. I mean, we all have a copy. That's the thing. The, yeah, but we, we only have one. Like, you don't, I don't go out and buy a new one every year. Are there, there 1.5 million school children reading it every year? I don't oh. know. I, and libraries have to replace it, I would think. Yeah, um, the, the thing that's crazy, and we said this last week, but it makes it even crazier now, is you can't get an ebook version of it. Right. Because um, it's stuck in this legal limbo hell. So once it becomes available on ebook, um, she'll make a lot more. The other thing is that the most of them are those six dollar mass market paperbacks, right? She's not selling yeah. fifteen dollar um, trade paperbacks. So moving a lot of units, good for the Harper Lee estate. It does make um, her estates quibble with the To Kill a Mockingbird Museum in Monroeville seem even pettier. Yes, it does. Because <laughs> she got plenty of the cabbage. Uh, in her garden, so to go after them for everything or you know percentage of all their sales, um, maybe she should get to killmockingbird dot com back. I am on board with that, but maybe I have we... to believe that she's has no idea that that's happening. That I she's mean, just sitting on her porch <sighs> drinking her sweet tea and has no idea yeah. that her lawyers are being jerks. I, it's too bad that the best case scenario she has no idea what her lawyers are doing, but that, I know. <laughs> that is the case here uh, a little bit. So uh, that's my fantasy. I, I, I don't know. Are you as fascinated as I am with how much money authors, big time authors, make and how many copies of this stuff get sold? I find it just riveting. Um, maybe not. As you don't much care. As... Yeah. Okay. No, okay. I don't. I do care. You don't but care, but you're not I'm riveted. I'm flabbergasted by this fact. Yes. I mean, probably for there's probably not a six year old book that makes anywhere close. To, I wonder what are the classics like this make this much money? Like Gatsby, maybe. I wonder. Well, how... from that time. Ta- what was it? When was I don't even know when to kill a Nineteen sixty. Be like Catcher in the Rye would be Catcher in the Rye. That yeah, like it'd be that those Catcher in the Rye, Gatsby, Catch Twenty Two. Maybe even the Bell Jar. Yeah, uh, that doesn't sell anywhere close to as many. I wouldn't think. Um, I had to read it in high school. I just assume everybody did. Yeah, I'd read it in high school as well. Maybe there's more of those than we think. You know what? A lot of people have to read these days uh, is um, their eyes were watching God. That yeah, moves a lot of units um, and beloved, but. You know, Harper Lee is that's that's a one size fits all. Like um, that's the one everyone reads. Okay, one more bit of follow up before we get to our first sponsor, and then we'll get into the new news of the week. Um, last week we were talking about the study that uh, Booklamp did of genres by word number, word count, and that fantasy was the longest. And I said, well, it's not that surprised because I rattled off someone. I said The Hobbit, and someone said, well, The Hobbit's only three hundred twenty pages. They're of course correct. 
I was thinking Lord of the Rings, which itself is three books. But I think even each of those is long, but you read you don't just stop at the end of Fellowship Ring. Come on. Right. You read all read the whole thing. So anyway, I wanted to clear that up. And one more announcement. We were talking on the show last week about the new podcast hosted by our friend and colleague Rita Mead called Dear Book Nerd. The first episode is live. Woo-hoo! So you can go find that. Search the iTunes store for um, Dear Book Nerd Dear Book Nerd or a <laughs> uh, <laughs> or Book Right. Since we're the publisher, you can find it there as well. Uh, right now, you can go to bookwrite.com slash podcast, and those episodes are showing up in the main feed with this show. Eventually, it'll have its own dedicated URL, but someone, <clears throat> possibly named Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't exactly know what he's doing, so I have to troubleshoot that a little bit. So check that out. It's going to be Who doesn't bi-weekly. want some bookish advice? That's right. We all need bookish advice. And uh, our good friend and dearly missed Rebecca Shinsky is the first guest host, and uh, I think there's a chance Amanda and I may be guesting on that in the future. Um, Amanda might be getting that news for the first time right now. She is. <laughs> <laughs> All That's right, cool. Gonna... I have lots of opinions about oh, lots of things. Oh, do we have? So. <laughs> there's so many. There's always something that comes up. Uh, and we've got a deep catalog of stuff we can fight about. All right, let's do our first sponsor. BookBub is back. Um, BookBub helps readers discover books they love at a great price. Here's what they do that's really great. So one thing that's happened with eBooks and the fall of agency pricing, and if you don't know what agency pricing is, you're so lucky. But in a nutshell, it means that Retailers have the latitude to price books at what they'd like rather than have to price them at what publishers set. So one thing that, as a result of that is that publishers and retailers are doing a lot more short-term, deeply discounted, I mean, sales. Um, when I was uh, you know, first buying books, seriously, like you bought the book and that was the price. Um, maybe if you were lucky, you get a two-for-one on one of those Barnes & Noble tables or 20% off a bestseller. But if you're going in the deep catalog of you know looking for old Vonnegut's, that was the price. You're never going to get a better price. But now you can find stuff for like one ninety nine, two ninety nine, ninety nine cents. Um, happens all the time. So what BookBook does is they get a bunch of deals sent to them from publishers, authors, retailers, and they go through it and pick out the best ones. And if you sign up, it's an email service. Totally easy to sign up. It takes about thirty seconds. You can click what categories you're interested in hearing about. And you get a daily email with a few picks. And you can tell them more as you get the picks in. This is for me. This isn't for me. They can hone in on your uh, particular taste. Um, and it's a really great way. It's free to join. Uh, each day you'll get an email. Um, usually it's 75% or more. And they pick the deals, as I said. Only 20% of the books submitted are selected to be featured. So it's not just a fire hose of like self-published books that are free today on Kindle only. You know, If you've been online around books, you know how this happens. Um, they take things, see what's interesting, try to match it to your taste. So that's bookbub.com. And if you go to bookbub.com slash bookwrite, that means they'll know you came from us. Maybe they'll come back, sponsor the show. No, they got their money's worth. But it's a great service. I bought a few things off there recently. Um, I saw Terry Jones's Silver Sparrow was something I've been meaning to pick up for a while. Um, and it was on BookBub the other day for two ninety nine. So I picked it up and, you know, you can stock, can kind of make your own ebook TBR. Um, you know, if you give yourself 30 bucks over the course of a few months with BookBub, you can uh, build a pretty nice ebook bookshelf. Okay, let's get to the news. Um, one thing we've talked a lot about on the show is reading diversely. And recently we've been talking about more about authors of color, but a lot of this was started by um, Vida. I think that's how they say their name. Uh, or I don't know if you're supposed to say V-I-D-A. But, I'm Vida. Yeah, I just <laughs> want to call it. Yeah, um, and one thing they do is they go through major literary publications and they count how many of the contributors are women, how many books by women get covered. And the stats, to say the least, are bad, generally speaking. Depressing. Um, and so one one thing that's coming out is that there's been a bit of a movement for a kind of a, I don't know, a big reading challenge, an internet-wide reading challenge to make 2014 the year of reading women. So the editor at, let's see if I can remember this dude's name, uh, Critical Flame, which is an American literary journal, um, dedicated a year to, to women writers. And, you know, reading only women writers a lot of times is kind of what they're saying. So he's going to dedicate a year's coverage over there. His, this guy's name is uh, Daniel, Daniel Pritchard. Pritchard. Yeah. Which... Um, the spirit behind this, I like, but I'm not sure. Here's my metaphor. I'm gonna then I'm gonna throw it to you. And again, you know how most people don't keep their New Year's resolutions. Yes. I kind of feel that about this. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, it's on the internet. <laughs> if they, so you if have they to don't do it. do it, they're gonna come after you. They're gonna get you. They're gonna get yeah. you. So, 
do you think this is a good way to solve this problem or address this problem, or, or am I being am I combing with too fine a brush? I don't think there is an alternative that's more attractive. You know, I mean, oh, people, you're probably right. This is the worst way, except for all the others. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I've blogged about classics for for years, and so I automatically just read a bunch of men, and I wasn't doing it on purpose. But un- until somebody pointed it out to me and made me sit down and think about it consciously. I would have just continued reading like old white guys until I died. Hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, I, no, I, I like it. I think it's a great idea to yeah. take a year and purposefully make, pe- make people think about their reading choices. Because I think most, most readers, and we saw this on Facebook when we, yeah, try, when we, we sure talk did. about diversity. Yeah, they just say, well, I read for the quality of the book or I read what I'm interested in or whatever, and they don't pay attention to the gender at all. Um, and Which doesn't mean that readers are sexist or anything like no. that it just you know it's a misbalance in publishing so drawing no. attention to it isn't a bad thing yeah no i don't think it's a bad thing i guess what i i wish there was a way that you could change your habits without doing sort of a deprivation diet if that makes sense um but i i don't know that you can so this is a good way to get if you want to do this go for it and if you are interested in doing it and decide to do it shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com um but, you know, it's, it's just very hard to think of a better way, as you say, like, how are you going to get people to read more women and authors of color unless they do something programmatic like every other book I'm going to read or all of them um, or something like that. My concern would be is when the year is over that I wonder how much it really sticks with you that, you know, from now on I'm going to read something else or do something a little bit differently. So um, that's just going to be interesting to follow. I don't know if they're going to have events or – um, this particular journal is going to be doing all their coverage of women. So check out the Critical Flame. I'm sure you can just Google Well, when it. the Vita numbers come out for 2013, I'm sure that'll spur this on a bit more. Yeah, that's well, right. maybe it won't. Maybe 2013 was a completely different animal. I doubt it, though. <laughs> well, maybe we are going to get free unicorns to ride. I mean, it could you happen. Know? You know, you never, you never know. Um, so that's going to be something interesting to follow. All right. So the next story... Uh, it's called The Human Library, and, and Amanda did a little more reading about this. So why don't you tell us a little more about this one? I am so fascinated by this. The Human Library started with by, it was started by a group of Danish youth activists, which is just a term I find to be so endearing. <laughs> and the idea is that you get together like a group of people who represent different facets of human life, and you loan them out. So each person is like a book, and you can go to the you know quote-unquote human library and check out a person and have that person tell you, their story and you just sit there and listen. And I just think that concept is so interesting. And I went onto the actual website um, to learn a little bit more about it. And they, they specifically pick people who represent a group. So like a vegan or a young Muslim man or a police officer or whatever. And then when you come to the human library to check out a book, the, the, the goal is to check out a person who represents your deepest stereotypes. So if you have issues with, ex-gang members, you check out the ex-gang member, et cetera. And the librarians, if you don't know what your deepest stereotype is or you don't think you have any, the librarians will sit down and interview you to find out what it is, and then they will pair you with the book. (laughs) They're going to diagnose your jerkiness. Your problems, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, I think it's – and I didn't know that, and that makes some of the stuff – I posted on – I linked to it in Critical Linking the other day – and then some of the comments about it were the image that was provided in the post I saw it in had, you know, had a bunch of figures on a bookshelf photoshopped together. And one of them was a woman in a thong and a shirt and not much else. Yeah. And there was a lot of, well, I bet everyone wants to check her out and why they do it. And it kind of demonstrated the point about a stereotype, right? Exactly. Um, that everyone made judgments about her and how we would think about her. Um, this is really cool. And, and I don't, Unfortunately, I don't think this podcast is going to make it out in time, but apparently in Monroe, New York, they're going to try something like this at the public library this Saturday, this Saturday. Um, I think it's an interesting idea. So do you think, so the people are there all day and if they get checked out multiple times, they tell the same story or you can't talk to them? They just talk at you? You can talk to them. You You can talk to them. You're supposed to. You're supposed to ask them the jerky questions that you don't think you're allowed to ask people or that you don't ask people because you don't associate with people, you know, quote unquote like that because you don't, whatever. Yeah. So you're supposed to ask them questions and there's a a section on the website about their best sellers, you know, and that changes with every region that they go to. Yeah. We'll drop a link as always um, in the show notes. You can go to bookwrite.com slash podcast. This is episode 37. So you look for episode 37, you can find the show notes there. Uh, That's really cool. I mean, I'm so skittish that 
would you go do this? Like if there was a human library that just ran through Richmond, would you, would you toddle down there and check out, I don't know, a Danish youth activist and talk to them? For, <laughs> I'd probably for, check out the vegan. The vegan. Tell yeah. me what is wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> Confirm my biases. Well, uh, my first reaction would probably be, I don't have any. Oh, of course. Yeah. You and I, obviously. since we're good liberal pinko bastards. Which means that I should probably go. Yeah. That means we should definitely go and yeah. talk to the librarians and have them triage us. Um, so that's a pretty cool idea. I mean, really, really creative. Like, I would never have come out with a million years. I guess I'm not a Danish youth activist, so I would never. Yeah, work on that, Jeff. I know. <laughs> I better. I better get through that. All right, let's move along. We got a lot of stats today, um, and this one is, well, depending on where you are on your novel in progress, may make you feel really good or really bad. Um, if you've been trying to write something forever and it's never getting done, it might make you feel good. If you have something that's almost done or you're trying to shop a book, it's going to make you feel bad. And this is something we've talked about on the show before. And it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's an, an open secret or not, but it's something that when I first actually got into the nitty gritty of understanding how publishing worked and learning more about the, the business, I learned pretty fast that most people that are traditionally published, um, even by big houses, don't make much money from their books. And this was what this story is about, is that most authors make less than $1,000 a year off their Ouch. royalties. Um, and this is a, we'll drop this link in the show notes. It's, it's a chart that's a little hard to read. So pardon us while we um, squint at it. <laughs> but for this one's comparing self-published, traditionally published, and then so-called hybrid authors, which means they do some traditional publish um, stuff and some self-publishing. But for traditionally published authors, it looks like 90% of the authors make less than $20,000 a year off their royalties. Um, and if you go down one step, 80% make less than $10,000 a year. Um, and then a huge swath, let's see, makes less than $1,000 a year. 55% makes less than $1,000 a year. And that's just for traditionally published authors. Um, this is a price to you or not? Uh, yes. Yes, well, okay. Yes, yeah. it is. I had yeah. to think about it for a second. Yeah. No, it is. I I guess I still have some of that uh, glamorous <laughs> yeah, right. image of being an author as, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, sitting on the beach in France. I don't know. Yeah, you, not so many beaches you can sit on for $1,000. Right. Um, no. I mean, 20% of traditionally published authors make bupkis a year, $0. Um, How is that possible? Well, their book's out of print probably. Oh, yeah. Um, or I guess you don't earn your advance maybe? Do you even get an advance? I'm questioning well, everything. Everything I, mean, I know is a lie. If you get an advance, most books, Burks, boy, that's a, that's a good one. Most books don't earn out, is my understanding. And earn out means they make enough royalties to cover advance. So those of you who don't know about how this works generally, is if you get an advance, you get an upfront payment, and that basically will cover your royalties up to that point. So if I get a $10,000 advance, the first $10,000 in royalties I would earn on my sales just cover that advance. If I make more on my royalties than $10,000, then I will get that in time. But my understanding is that most books don't actually earn out their advance. So that is a lot. That's probably a lot of this. Um, you know, and there's just so many books out there that if your book doesn't do well over time, uh, you know, you're not going to get money. There's a couple of things. We've got methodology problems, and I'm going to invoke the spirit of Rebecca here too. Yeah, thank it you. doesn't break out like the number of books you have published, right? So it could be that the people making – all these people, most of them only published a few books 20 years ago. Well, that's a tough go. Um, so you know that, that's something else to think about there as well. Why did they include the aspiring authors? And what does that even mean? I don't know what that means because shock, <laughs> and what's shocking to no one is this most aspiring authors make $0, 90%. 90% <laughs> I don't know who the people that make any money that would call themselves aspiring authors aspiring. are. Aspiring because if you make any money, aren't you automatically an author? Like you've made money. Yeah, on... I guess. I mean, we can get into who gets to call themselves an author or not the other time. I say if you write, you're an author. It's just if you've been published yet or put something out for other people to buy. Um, the interesting thing I thought, and they broke down self-publishing, and then the hybrid column has actually, it looks like they make more money on average than the people who just traditionally publish or just self-publish. Now, that could be a problem, too, because the people who self-publish and traditionally publish probably think, I've got a big enough platform that I can sell some of these books on my own. Um, so there might be some inherent biases there. It doesn't mean that if you have a traditional 
um, book deal and a book out that you start self-publishing, you're going to rocket up the charts. There might be some selection bias and the kind of people who say, you know what, I'm going to publish some myself, some of my stuff on my own. I don't need the publishers and get a cut of my royalties, um, anything like that. But in just self-published versus traditionally published, much more money being made on the traditionally published side. Still. Which I think I'm a little surprised by. Oh, you are surprised by? Maybe. I'm, I'm surprised by everything. Yeah, everything, everything shocks me. <laughs> I've got eyes the size of saucers at this. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess you hear so many success stories about self-publishing well, author. And I know that they're kind of exceptions to the rule, the things that you hear about. But there are, it's in the, it's in, you know, the, the book turnet news yeah. constantly. Right. About how great self-publishing is and, and all that. So, well, I think it's kind of like a, you hear about the lottery winners, right? Yeah, and you don't you don't see you don't get a news story about uh, Jack who j- bought fifty <laughs> tickets and didn't win anything. He's been doing it for twenty five years. You don't really do that. Well, that coupled with you know the deaths of publishing, ringing yeah, the bells, kind right. of stuff makes it like oh, traditionally published authors make more. They make still, more. They still make more. Still true. <laughs> still true. And um, just to, to do the same stats we did. Ninety percent of self-published authors make less than five thousand dollars. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, less than five thousand dollars a year. Um, you have to go way up to the ninety-fifth percentile to get to people making more than you know ten thousand dollars a year. So that's interesting. I guess maybe the good news, if you're interested in self-publishing, is that it's not completely out of whack. Like you can publish by yourself and make some money. Um, but you're probably going to want to be a hobbyist. But frankly, if you're traditionally published, you're probably a hobbyist too. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. There was a story the Millions did a little bit ago about how many um, authors in America are there and then how many of them make enough money to live off. Um, and depending on what you mean by enough to live off, um, there's not that many. There just aren't that many. Um, I would be interested in a genre breakdown. Yeah, of I'm both sure. Of these. Yeah. I'm guessing the self-published stuff is genre out the wazoo. Oh, um, yeah. Bigfoot erotica. Yeah, right, oh, yeah. Tend totally. Loch Ness Monster uh, <laughs> Is that real? It is. It's no, a real thing. Real, I joked yeah. about it on Twitter the other day, and someone's like, um, don't joke about that. You remember Rule 34, Jeff? There's always <laughs> – if there's something, there's uh, porn about it on the internet. So that's interesting. If you're an author, that either makes you feel good or bad or I don't know what else. Um, let's do a happier story. I don't. Was that a sad story, the author not making money? I guess it is. Uh, I guess it depends on what your delusion. Yeah. Well, you know what? It gave me a little bit of hope as a selfish reader um, for the following reason. It's like we hear about the death of publishing, blah, blah, blah. What happens if you can't make money writing books? Well, and I guess the answer to that is, well, people still write, even though there's not that much money out there. Yes. Like, I wonder how many books we would actually lose if there were $0 to be made in publishing. Um, probably we'd lose some, no doubt about that. But That's we wouldn't lose them all. Um I don't know. I, I, I don't want that to happen. But I think it's not an apocalypse. It might be a dystopia, but it's not an apocalypse. <laughs> There's a subtle difference. <laughs> yeah, there is a major difference. Um, all right, let's go to our hero of the week. This story actually was that came out in December, but I just it, cro- it crossed the transom of my internet life this week. And it is about a Iowa school teacher. Her name is Ann Cook. And she, for 70 years, went to her local library um, in Norris, Iowa, and she got a little bit of an inheritance, but not too much, but she spent um, most of her life teaching middle school in this small town. She lived frugally, didn't buy new cars, and when she died, uh, and her will stipulated that $2.5 million uh, would go to her local library. That's so great. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. I want to read a book about her. I do. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'd read, I mean, like, maybe not a, biogra- a biography, but like a novel, like... Short story. Short story, yeah. Just like, did she pinch pennies every day thinking, I'm going to give this to the library? Or did she save up money and at the end decide who she was going to give it to? Or just just a great story. Um, I want Marilyn Robinson to write this. Now you're going to make me cry. That's, you know, that's a cheap <laughs> shot. You know I've got a soft spot. That's not fair. You do. It would be so good, though. Yeah. So it's going to go towards, let's see, um, supplement the book collections and buy some new technology, do some tablets and laptops. Um, and it, uh, I guess a couple of foundations are going to match her gift. So Ann Cook, fare good you well. You. Good on you. Um, and uh, maybe some other, give some other people an idea. About you know, I've got to think that she did this on purpose because of what 
like her attorney is saying about how frugally she lived. It sounded yeah. like she was doing it with like an end in mind. Yeah, I, you know, maybe her. I bet her middle school is like, oh, yeah, no, no, <laughs> That's true. Anne, come on, fifty fifty. Yeah, I know. Give us, throw us a bone. It doesn't actually. It doesn't say here that there were no other beneficiaries, so it could be possible that her middle school um, got some of the money, but. She better. She's a better man and woman than I am, Gunga Din. Because if I had a two and a half million bucks, I'd probably be taking some vacation. I don't know. I mean, that's really remarkable um, way to go about doing that. So, Ann Cook, thank you so much. All right, let's do another story before we get to our next sponsor. Um, let's do stats again. This okay. is a happy story. More American adults read a print book in the past year uh, than in 2013 and in 2012 even as e-reading continues to grow. So, all right. Do you have the chart there in front of you? Do you open the link there? I do. Okay. So why don't you tell us what stat on that bar graph you found most surprising? Mm. Oh, gosh. I kind of, I thought the whole thing was The whole surprising. thing is surprising. Yeah. Of course I did. I thought everything yeah. <laughs> was surprising. Hey, Amanda, do you know the sky is blue? <laughs> what? <laughs> My world is upside down. Okay, honestly, I'm just surprised that the number went up. Yeah, okay, I think that's the big thing, right? Yeah. Is that the total went up. Um, of any format. Of any format. Because that's not the story we're hearing, right? Right, exactly. That's not, the publishing is dead. Here we go again. Reading is on the decline. Right. So basically, 2011, 79% of Americans read a book of any kind. That dipped in 2012 to 74%, and then, oh, you know what? Their graph is wrong. They, they're, they're, they're barcoding that light blue as 2014, which hasn't happened yet, so that's hard to have data for. Mm-hmm. That should be 2013. And then went back up to 76% uh, read a book in 2013, which I'm really surprised by because 2012 was a year of 50 shades. Oh, yeah. And that sold so many books that I would have thought that there'd be a sort of uh, aberration spike in the data for 2012, I wonder if there's a connection between the sales of Fifty Shades of Grey and then a subsequent rise in e-reader sales. Mm, maybe so, yeah. Like people kept hearing about it but didn't necessarily want to read it yeah. in public, blah, blah, blah. You know? Right. That could be. Uh, that could be. Um, print went from 71% in 2011 to 65% of Americans in um, 2012, then has bounced back up to 69%. Ebook has done a steady rise. 17% had read an ebook in 2011. 23% read an ebook in 2012, and 28% has uh, read an ebook in 2013. So, really, in the course of five years, an increase of about, you know, more than 50% of uh, the number of people reading an ebook. I wonder if that jump from 17 to 23%, 6%, maybe that's 50 Shades too, because that's 2012. Um, that's certainly possible. If you would have asked me, Jeff, what percentage of Americans have read at least one book in any format? last year, I think I would have come in below 76%. I absolutely would have. 50, maybe? 50? I would have never guessed in the 70s. Yeah. We're, we're in such a weird position because like, we spend all of our time thinking about books and talking to people who read books. So maybe we have the opposite. We have like everyone else is different than us nerds. Yeah, so, we got weird, right? Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting that 76% still read um, a book in any format. So print is down from 2011, two percentage points. But it's going back up. But it's, you know, it's got a nice little rebound. How I'm going to be, if there's another uptick for 2014, that's going to be super good news. Don't you I think? I predict that there, yeah, I predict there will be. You think that's it's going to Oh, okay, let's make predictions. What do you think this number, we'll roll back the tape um, in a year. Do you have a sense? What do you think it's going to be? Mm. So the whole, we'll, we're, we're not going to break it down, print an ebook. Just the whole market. 76% is what it was in 2013. You're going higher, you're saying. You're going to say I say 79. And I say it'll go back to 79. So you're going to level out with 2011, you think. Yeah. Cuz I don't I don't foresee any big like blockbuster 50 shades type thing happening no. and I think, you know, like e-reader sales are kind of Yeah, they're marginally going up. Yeah, like little ticks. So Little ticks. I think, yeah, okay, you're going to go 79. So you're going to say flat. So really my question is am I going to go higher or lower than that? Well, let's see, Divergence coming out this year, right? So a lot of people are going to pick that up. I wonder if that'll make a difference. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There's not a lot of big books coming out this year. Um, there's not another Divergent. We got a Divergent in 2013, the last of that. We got Allegiant. Um, I'm trying to think. 
Hmm. You know, we had Gatsby in 2013. I wonder That's if true. that made a, a lot of people pick that up probably as well. Didn't the Rowling? I don't. I don't know who that did. When did the Casual Vacancy come out? Uh, it came out in 2011. Oh. Because that was the first year Book Ride was up. JK. It uh, came out. Yeah, JK. Um, I don't think The Cuckoo's Calling did that great. No. I mean, it sold books, but not, not like it did before. You know, I say it's going to stay flat 2014 or 76%. 76%. Yeah, I think it's going to stay flat this year. Because um, we also remember had Catching Fire in 2013. So I bet some people picked that up as well. I'm wondering how much of this uptick this past year has to do with people getting tablets that don't, like not e-reader specific, but just a regular tablet yep. and it occurring to them like, oh, I could, I could read a book on this thing. People who don't generally, who right. never would step foot in a bookstore, yeah. who would never go to Barnes & Noble. Right. Just because they have it. They in have a hands. tablet. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's an Amazon app or there's a exactly. Barnes & Noble app. Yeah. That's an interesting point is that you kind of are getting digital bookstores stealthily infiltrating people's homes into your house yeah especially with kindle fires right which i bet a lot of people are buying to watch movies and tv shows and stuff like oh maybe i'll check out this book that i heard about somewhere that else. everybody keeps talking about. yeah because it's right there yeah the other thing in 2012 is that's when borders went belly up mm-hmm. so that could have something to do as well with uh the decline in books is that a lot of people had their local bookstore close um indies have made a bit of a resurgence um, that might, I don't know if that's continuing on an uptick or not. Barnes and Noble has been closing stores, even as they're more profitable. It's very hard. There's a lot of moving parts <laughs> there. Cause there's a few things. One is, you know, are there big books? Like, cause a big book can move the whole market, um, the physical bookstores, movie adaptations, and then the general sort of sense that there are other things to do besides read books. I, you know what, I guess this really tells me is that that, fear a lot of people have that the internet's going to kill people reading books just hasn't really happened in a way. No. You, know, in a, you would like to, you would think it that would be like steadily like eroding or there'd be a big dip or something, but maybe we've reached the bottom of where, you know, what's going to be affected by that. Um, that at least may, maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to see this in comparison to like a TV viewership. Oh yeah. Graph. Right, That'd right. be interesting. Well, TV viewership is way down and I, I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know how they're accounting for this stuff anymore, but um, TV viewership is way down, which is – I mean, it, I'm sure it looks better than um, news, print newspapers, I'll tell you that much, or <laughs> right. radio, stuff like that. So the resilience of books, you got to love it. Well, this says here that people on, – on the right above the little graph, yep. it says that people who read ebooks, most people who read ebooks also read print books. So I'm wondering if mm. people who – this hypothetical person I've invented who got a tablet and is suddenly like, oh, reading they're, is actually Those fun. are not people. Those are not real people. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not. He's not real. Yeah. Um, is suddenly also buying print books? Like you snuck a tablet bookstore thing into his house and he's rediscovered yeah. reading and is now buying print books again. Is that a mm-hmm. thing? Is that happening? I, now, tell me if, if you feel the same way. I've sort of felt on the, in the, the zeitgeist that, the re- people are remembering how much they like print books. Uh, did, are you picking that up at all? That they're sort of a, oh, yeah, print. Oh, yeah. Is that kind of cool? Yeah, it's like kind of cool, exactly. Am I wrong? No, no you're not wrong. You, you feel that too? Yeah, I kind of feel like maybe it's, maybe it's an old, it's like a, it's a, I'm, I've had enough technological stuff. This is something I can still pick up and hold in my hand um, and put on my shelf and, you know, do some. It has its own experience. Tactical stuff. Yeah. You know, what, Tactile, I mean. I don't love the how ebooks, the experience of reading an ebook is different or print book. That sort of op ed, I haven't seen one in a few months, which means we're due for one here pretty soon <laughs> from Salon. But there, the thing that does distinguish a print book from an ebook as opposed to a CD from an MP3 is that the actual physical experience is different. Like you right. put in your CD or listen to your MP3, it's on your head, it's in your headphones or on your stereo or whatever. Like it is the same. Um, or a DVD versus a download. But you can't really say that of the experience of reading a print book versus an e-book. Whatever the difference is, it is different. Um, and I guess if anything that's different, some people are going to prefer one over the other. Well, this is obviously purely anecdotal. Yeah, sure. Anecdotal, our favorite. My, uh, like my family members who have tablets, my friends who have tablets, seem to eventually kind of abandon them and, and go back. Is that true? To, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. They... Um, and it's not something that they can articulate because you know that I've been like, tell me more. Like, <laughs> you prefer a print book to a, to a digital book. And they, they don't know. Yeah. I just Would like you fill the out smell. the survey? 
Yeah. They just like they say smell. God, so many people say smell. So many, so many people. And you know what? Amazon Kindle should them. have like a little um, candle, a book scented candle you can candle. burn while you're reading on your Kindle Fire. And a lot of people seem to quote a visual ownership. Like I want to see the thing in front of me on my shelf, as opposed to I have in feelings the cloud. about that, Amanda. You have feelings. I have feelings about that. Do, are they just proud? Is that what it is? I use. I guess I, as a as a uh, recovering proud of my personal library, I can I can then see with some clarity how kind of weird that is in a way. I absolutely feel that way. Like I feel the same where I need to have the physical. Thing. You do. You feel that I same do. way. I'm so sorry, but yes, I no, do. no. I mean, I'm not indicting you. Just your whole your kind. Well, like, it's a whole group, like not me. just you. I'm just singling you out. Um, I do have. I mean, I have a nook and I love it, but yeah. I found that I only really read digital advanced review copies on it. Oh, by necessity, it's a pragmatic choice, not a exactly. Yeah, one. or um, I will get a book I'm unsure of from a digital copy of it from the library, read it on my nook, and then go buy a physical copy to put on my shelves. Even though I know for really? a fact that I'm never going to oh, publishing that book loves again. you. They love you. You're double dip. They're double dipping. You so you're a candidate for uh, you'd love as I would buy a print version, get a, a bundled ebook with it too, right? You if want that, that doesn't happen sometime in the near future, I'm going to riot. I know. In I'm thinking about starting an ebook. I'm starting about thinking about starting an e, uh, a book retailer just so we can have that. Like that's that all we'll do. You can so only good. buy print print bundled stuff. It is it is a little insane, right? It's uh, I mean, so, it's not I don't understand. Me. I mean, I'm obviously not a like yeah. insider, so <laughs> right. I don't know the ins and outs of it. But ah, it can't be that hard. I know. Every time I get on Twitter and I'm like, "Why can't this happen?" Everyone's like, "Well, they're publishing reasons why." I'm like, "Well, that's that's dumb. It Just the make problem. it. It's not like it came. It's not like a, the laws of physics that you can't change things." Yeah, because what I want. Don't complain about how your industry is going on the toilet. <laughs> you want to solve basic. <laughs> Say, well, we can't problem. do that. I'm sorry, sir. Um, <laughs> The one I was complaining about, the term of books we talked about last week, um, a lot of uh, our readers and our contributors follow it and would like to say, just if you bought all 17 as an ebook, you get 20% off the whole bundle, right? And Rebecca and I were talking about this on Twitter and someone, I can't remember who said, well, there, there's, they can't do that. There's a reason they can't do that. And I was like, well, that's just dumb. Why can't Kobo put them all on sale? Why can't, I mean... I feel like maybe they could. I don't know. That's what well, I because they're all from they're from different publishers and they have different rules. Yeah, and all that. I know, but it seems like they have more pricing anyway. I thought that's why agency went away. If agency, if you can't do that, then why do we even bother with this stuff? Anyway, this is a completely different rant. What are we <laughs> talking about? I have no idea. We're just getting uh, things we don't like about book people market. who own. Oh yeah, tablets. Right. Yeah. And tablets. Yeah. That maybe it's a bit. Maybe it's a bit of trying out tablets and then coming back to print a little bit. Though the ebook numbers are rising, so once those flatten out or go down, that's when we'll really know. Um, my general impression is that people, meaning my family, yeah. um, don't see enough benefit in an e-reader to continue changing their habits. Yeah, yeah. So they're just used to the paper or whatever. <sighs> right. Maybe once they know that there are deals to be had, that could be a mover, right? Deals! Oh, yeah. <laughs> like if it's four bucks family, rather than absolutely. 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I, I read on an iPad mini, and the reason I do that is I like to read in multiple platforms. I read iBooks, Kindle, Nook, Kobo, um, depending on you know what deal I have or if I'm buying it through Kobo, my uh, local independent bookstore. It's not really that local. It's just a New York um, <laughs> word. Um, gets a little cut of that too. Kobo, which I should say, sponsors the site. So all disclaimers. Ahoy. All right. Well, let's not get down the rabbit hole of what we don't like about publishing. Um, okay. I better do our next sponsor. One thing that isn't on there, which I'd like to know, is audiobooks, because as we've talked about on the show before, there's a lot of talk about audiobooks these days. Um, one stat we saw is that Hachette said in 2013, audiobook their audiobook sales were up 31% over the previous year, which blows all these numbers uh, out of the water. So it's a good time to talk about our next sponsor, audible.com. I want to thank Audible for its support of Book Riot, the podcast. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. Um, we have a special offer for our listeners coming up here in just a second, but let me tell you more about Audible before we get to that. Audible offers more than $150,000. You just get it if you go there. No, <laughs> 150,000 audiobooks covering virtually every genre. Um, if you want to listen to a book, Audible probably has it. That's just how it is. It's great. I remember back in the day when they were the library, only very few of the books got transformed into audiobooks. And that's because it was really expensive because you had like 900 CDs you had to get <laughs> if you wanted to listen to the new James Patterson or whatever it was. Uh, but now a lot of us have smartphones or tablets and a computer. You can listen to on your computer as well. You can listen to any time, download the book and anywhere. Basically, if you have something that could play an MP3, you can 
play an Audible audiobook on an iPhone, iPad, Macs, PCs, Kindles, so on and so forth. Um, the best part, Audible's li- offering Book Riot listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day trial. So you go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to take advantage of the offer. Um, by doing so, you not only get to check out a great service, you should port our show as well, audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. Um, so one thing they, you know, we like to do is to offer a pick um, of something that you might go check out on audible.com. And I don't know if I mentioned this when Audible was a sponsor in the fall or not, but the audio, audiobook experience I had recently that I cannot shake is The Killer Angels um, um, by Shara. Uh, it's the story of Gettysburg, and it's historical fiction, um, but it is an unbelievable accomplishment of how he manages to keep it so you understand where all the pieces of the army are, but also that each of the generals on both sides and the lieutenants have a distinct personality and voice um, and motivations and how it tells the story um, and tries to connect it to the larger issues of the Civil War and the politics of the day, but in a very sort of even-handed way. And I don't mean that he covers up the facts about slavery or the violence, but just like he gives us a sense of what the people on the Southern side were thinking and saying and what people on the Northern side were thinking and saying and why they're there. Uh, Robert E. Lee is a major character, as you might expect. Um, Longstreet is probably the star of the show. He's um, Robert E. Lee's first lieutenant, basically. I mean, he's a general, but he's Lee's right-hand man. Joshua Chamberlain on the Union side is probably the Union protagonist um, who was the the hero of Little Round Top and the Swinging Gate. Um, And you get Pickett's Charge and the whole situation is just, it's a magisterial work on audio. There's something really remarkable about it. Um, so that was one I would highly recommend. I don't know. I, I put it off forever. I always was interested in it, but I thought it was like just for like super Civil War nerds that like, you know, went and dressed up and hung out in August heat and ate beans on the field. Um, but it's so much more. It's just <laughs> un- you, you've been you've, have you ever met with these Civil War reenactors talking? Oh, about- I live in Richmond. Oh, Virginia. OK. Yeah. You're Absolutely. in the White House. Yeah, you are in the White House Center of that. Yeah. But so they, there's a certain. Uh, there's a certain um, boy. I better pick my word carefully here. I mean, they're super into it, and I didn't think it would be a book for. I mean, I'm a casual sort of observer and fan of Civil War history, but it really was great. And I talked about it too much. Do you have an audiobook you've listened to recently that you want to pick here? Do you do audiobooks? I don't. You don't do audio. Well, I am slowly converting. Slowly audiobooks. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You're, so you're one of these new people. I You're am, one of these I'm people that are new. coming to audible.com. I'm, I'm a willing convert. Oh, you are? I, I really would love to get into audiobooks. I know I have time in my day where I'm yeah. doing something that I, you know, could be listening to an audiobook at the same time. But All right. I just never remember. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. It's great in the car. Um, I love it on the subway when I'm out walking the kids to and from daycare in the mornings. And then when I pick them, uh, my son up at, um, at noontime. Uh, I think it's great I, when I'm doing the dishes, um, when I'm doing just kind of like routine stuff for the cider around the house. Um, I think it's really great. So if you've got a pick, uh, this is what something I want you to do if you're listening to the show. If you've got, I want to know what your favorite audiobook is, and maybe we'll read some of these off for the next um, Audible spot. Podcast at bookriot.com. Tell us what the best audiobook ever it is, and maybe Amanda will pick one of them up. You've already you've read Killer Angels, right? I have, and I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Well, if you ever want to do a reread. Do it on audio because, gosh darn, it's great. Oh, I do have one. Oh, yay. Yay, okay. It's just taking me forever. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Oh, you you did that in the fall or last summer. I remember you were tweeting about that. I'm still listening You're to still, it. Well, it's because huge, it's like, right? <laughs> it's so many hours. It's, it's so many hours. And it's a good deal. Like You get like 5,000 hours of, uh, of entertainment for an audiobook. Yeah. And that is what it says it is, right? I mean, I... Oh, it's absolutely... Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like a seminal classic history of... The Third Reich. If you're at all a World War II buff, you've probably obviously heard of it. Yeah, oh yeah, I've heard of it. I've I've never Um, read it. And it takes its title from the rise and fall fall of the Roman Empire, the Gibbon, the sort of canonical historical work of any kind. Um, That's good. That's a great pick. I I tend to do nonfiction better on audiobook. Fiction, for some reason, is not great with audio for me. so that's a good that's a good one. I have to maybe this summer I'll have to pick it up when I'm got some time. 
All right. You feel so smart. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, be the first. There's a first time for everything. <laughs> All right. We're going to go into stats more, but this not just Americans writ large. This is some data about teenage readers. Um, so Nielsen Book Scan, which they do a lot of the stats and surveys that we talk about here, um, they did a survey, and they said that now 41 percent of teens in a 2013 poll said they do not read for fun. And this number is up, which means badder, right? (laughs) From 21% of teens who said they did said the same in the fall of 2011. Now that is what we call a cratering. That is, that is a bad news buster. Um, This was conducted among children aged 13 to 17. Let's can we put a happy spin on this? I don't know. <laughs> I'm having a hard time. Uh, help me, Amanda. Help me. Ah, uh, no. It could be worse. It could be raining. Well, I think it's worse. I think it's kind of worse a little bit because this is like divergent and the Hunger Games. Uh, all I know. That didn't make any mm-hmm. difference. You know. Yeah. Um, the good news for book publishers, according to the guy that ran the poll is that the children's book market is resilient. Okay, great. That's that's what we call blow, that's what we call blowing sunshine. Um and it's not yet that teens won't resume their love of reading as digital books gain adoption, it's just they haven't done it yet. I, that sounds like complete double talk Orwellian think speak, you know, good thing. How do you know that? I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got on my divining rod and I was looking at yeah. some chicken in trials and that's what I saw. I you know, you put take it to the bank. I really want I want to know why? Like, I want, I want them to have asked the, the teens why, and then I want their answers. But it doesn't say here if doesn't they asked say them, like, why. what they were doing instead. Because that, that bodes very badly for the future of reading, right? Yeah, I'm going to go readjust my pew prediction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's just not for next year. Like, some of the, only some of these will turn a, a 18 next year. Um, yeah, you would think – we hear so much about YA – that we would think that there's a lot of material out there these for these kids, but we know that YA isn't just for you know people this age. But um, that's really bad, and it's fast all of a sudden, fast, what, fast, what fast. What could possibly account for such a dip? Well, the, <laughs> the the bad the bad version is is that there's too much other stuff now, right? Video games and games on your iPhone and video and. TV everywhere is finally, <laughs> finally has struck a mortal sort of non-flesh wound, and we've we caught an artery here. Yeah. Um, one thing might be that forty-one percent might have been artificially high in the fall of twenty eleven, right? Um, it could be. When Mockingjay come out? Was that twenty eleven? The last book? I have no idea. Um, maybe I'll Google that real quick while we're thinking about it. So it could be there was some artificial. Oh, I hear you clicking. So Sorry. you're looking at no, go for it. Well, I'm sort of trying to figure out some way to not cry about the statistic. It was 2010. Mockingjay was Mockingjay. 2010. Darn it. Well, that doesn't really help us. Um, how about uh, Divergent? When was the first Divergent book? Mm. That was 2011. Okay. Well, there may be something there. But see, then the books have come out since then. Allegiant came out last year. Mm-hmm. So you would think that would. When did the last the last Harry Potter was a million years ago? Oh, a million years ago. Because so I, many years ago. Yeah, because that's <laughs> I remember that because uh, I read it hungover on a plane <laughs> after Most a bachelor excellent. party, um, and so my friend whose bachelor party that was for us, it's been married a while, uh, so it's been it's been a long time. I don't know what to say about this. We don't know much about the methodology here. There could be something weird about it. Um, I don't know. You know, I've got a quick question for you. This is something I want to write about for the site, um, and I've been wanting to do it for a, for a while. Were you an English major? I was a history major. History major. Um, do you think that most people who become book lovers and serious readers um, as adults, do you think their experience of being taught literature in high school hindered or helped their love of books on the whole? Oh, on the whole? On um... the whole. Oh, I would pro- I would say helped. Helped on the whole. Okay. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder about that. Did it help yours? Yes. It did help yours. Okay. I was in a very rigorous academic boot camp of a liberal arts high school. Yeah. So it was all English and history. So English you wouldn't history. be the reader you are today without your experience of English in, in high school, you don't think? In no way. Okay. We we read like the most weighty of class. I read Anna Karenina in high school. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why I started blogging about the classics. Yeah, we're, maybe because... we have to do some sort of poll or something because I was a serious reader pretty young, 
and I think it was outside of school. Um, and my experience in school, maybe what I read was affected, but that I became a, a serious reader. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I I was a reader before high school, but yeah. it changed the way right. that I read. But yeah. I, I just wonder, like, because I don't want to pin my hopes up. I wonder, you know, the, are these... Are these kids going to change? How how will it happen that these twenty one percent then become the seventy nine percent that read later? Here's another thing I was thinking about. It says for fun, right? Yeah. Do you think most people who read a book as an adult would they say they're doing it for fun? I don't think that's the word they would use. Yeah, right. I wonder. Relaxation, maybe, or something like that. Escapism. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's just that's the only thing that that thing that when I was thinking about it and trying not to like you know um, go you know, cry havoc for publishing <laughs> was that maybe it's fun is the, the not the thing that they grow into later on. Um, do I read for fun? That's a weird to say, right? I, I don't, don't know. think I no. I wouldn't say fun. We we read. We don't have to read though. A lot of what we do for our job now is about reading. But we would have been, I mean, you and I started out in this game, like just writing our own stupid blogs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And were you doing that for fun? Like fun is a weird, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. You do it because you like it, right? But does that? Yeah. When I think of fun, I think of like going to the fair or something. I don't know. Like it's just such an instant. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Anyway, so that's something that's worth thinking about Um, because you like it versus for fun. I I don't know. I find that difficult to say. Um, That's, that'd be a good poll. I don't know how we'd word it exactly, but how would you describe the voluntary reading you do? Fun, edification, relaxation, excitement. I mean, I don't know. Excitement? Who knows? Mm. That's weird. Was that a weird word? Well, it depends on your genre. Well, it depends on your genre. <laughs> depends on your genre. Um, okay. Anything else you want to talk about that? I want to get away from this stat as far as I can because I can pretend it's not true. Well, I clicked on the little link underneath. The, oh, you, you followed up. Okay, what did you find? I did, sorry. And no, there's no, just right. another little interesting stat that says over half of all kids under 13 are exclusively digital readers with hmm. 85% of those kids e-reading at least once a week. Hmm. So how did they get that? I mean, I know the original, the 41% is oh, 13 to 17. younger than 13. Younger than 13. Yeah, and this is younger than 13. 85% so, of them surveyed e-read a book at least once a week. So maybe this 13 to 17-year-old group falls into a weird category of like, they didn't start reading digitally, but they're living digital lives now. And so they're not their book reading hasn't made the transition. Maybe that's what this guy's trying to say. And maybe these kids under 13 will just grow up e-reading and then they'll read for fun like they do everything else for fun on their tablets. I don't know. That's my rosy um, colored glasses. Um, It's just a weird transitional generation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've long since said that, uh, for a long, couple years, (laughs) that it'll be interesting to see when the people who are in high school and college now are 40, 35 to 55, which is, you know, most of the book dollars come from that demographic. Yeah. Are they going to be buying print? Are they going to be buying digital? What are they going to be doing? Because um, um, I teach 18-year-olds how to write better sentences <laughs> in a day job, and they all have tablets. Um, and I don't know how many I, – I, you know, that's a stat I'd like to see. 18 to 22-year-olds, college students, what are they doing? I wonder right that now? about my children all the time. Yeah. Yours prefer print, right? They don't love – Yeah, actually – this morning, I was trying to read him one of my my son Atticus. I was trying to read him a, one of his little board books, and um, he got distracted. So I went off and I picked up my Nook, and he took my Nook out of my hand and goes, "No, no, mommy, not a book." Oh, interesting. I was like, yeah. mm, "It is, I guess." You're too young for this conversation. Yeah, my son Ames. If I'm doing something on my phone or I, the iPad, he wants to do one of his puzzles. He's not there to read the like that. Doesn't really strike him, but he he does like a print book, so. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the that future. Out. Yeah. All right. Let's, this is a speculative story, but I think it's fun to think about before we get to new books. Um, there's a big conference called Digital Book World, and it's a bunch of people who are interested in the future of publishing and books and technology get together. And this one guy, Joseph Esposito, said this really interesting thing is that he thinks that Walmart might buy Barnes & Noble. Um, is that real? Well, I mean, how do you mean real? Like, I don't know that he has a, like a, a bug on the wall in um, Arkansas. That's what I mean. Like, is it, yeah. is it actually? I don't think he has a thing. I think he knows that Walmart and Amazon are locked in this sort of mortal battle for the heart of American retail. Yeah. Um, and that one 
part that Walmart's bad at is books. Um, they have some there, and actually they move a lot of units, but they don't. They can't compete anywhere like what Amazon does with books. And he thought that Barnes & Noble is down, um, even though their profits are a little bit up, but they're still down. Their Nook business is difficult. But Walmart couldn't shoot a lot of cash into the Nook business. They could have their own tablet business, Walmart. Um, they could have their own ebook platform, just buy it out and have Nook. Um, and do it that way, and they'd have all these other stores. You know, they've had all they'd have all the Barnes and Noble um, uh, physical locations. And one thing Walmart knows how to do better than anyone else is make retail spaces profitable um, and cheap. So I don't know if it's gotten yeah. so bad that I want this to happen or not. <laughs> no, I'm so conflicted. Yeah, right. Because I want I'm like I want Barnes and Noble to exist. Like, yeah, I don't shop there that much because there's not one around me really. Um, but I think it's good on the whole for that ecosystem to exist. On the other hand, I don't love Walmart. <laughs> right. That, exactly. I want there to be a large retailer to compete with Amazon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I don't want it to be Walmart. I don't want it to be Walmart. And like, I have so many. Uh, do you with love Walmart. Target more than Walmart? Like, I mean, are they really that different? I don't know. I like to tell myself they are. I do too because it's cleaner <laughs> and they've got red. It's so much prettier. Yeah, I know. It's really And the is. people are nicer. I, I know. know. Boy, that is, that's our bourgeois preference is so coming bad. out, right? It's so bad. <laughs> um, but if you, want, if you really want Barnes & Noble to exist, and the choices are Walmart buying them or not buying them, probably you put your chip down on Walmart buying them, right? Like, that's the greatest possibility to exist, right? I mean, Yeah. Like, do you do you want it to survive with a disease or die? I, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Because I, I, you know, there's a lot of talk about should we like Amazon? Should we not like Amazon? Um, I'm kind of neutral. I do. I buy from Amazon sometimes, but I don't exclusively buy there. But what I do want is there to be competition. Like, exactly. I don't think uh, hegemony uh, and the Amazon hegemony is good for anybody. So I want there to be sort of a full throated uh, counterpoint. And I don't know if that's Barnes and Noble. Go for it. What the effect of Barnes of Barnes Noble being purchased by Walmart would have on independent bookstores? Because mm. I, I can just imagine all of my like very <laughs> liberal hipster friends who just cannot deal with Walmart being you know, just going straight back into the arms of the independent. Yeah, I mean, because you're right. Barnes and Noble is the underdog now. Yeah, like, like were you were probably were you paying attention enough to know that Barnes and Noble was like the big bad for a while? Were you paying yes. attention? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, I don't – I wasn't really paying attention too much, but I, I did hear a little bit of, about that when that first was going on. So now they're a sympathetic figure that we're pulling for, even those of those of us who um, love and like independent bookstores. But I think even they would recommend that, you know, we need Barnes & Noble to stick around. I think by now, most independent bookstores are in a place where they're not really competing with Barnes & Noble too much, right? Like they've kind of – well, it depends on, I, I think, the, the towns. Or yeah, I guess that's probably true. I guess that's probably true. Um, but what an interesting idea to have, like, Amazon is this Goliath now that does retail so much above and beyond books to have someone come in and give the backing to Barnes & Noble. Like, because it's a little unfair just in terms of scale. And Barnes & Noble, all they do is books and, like, what's in the store, like some games and some music and stuff, where Amazon will sell you dog food and diapers and right. you know, basically anything you need. Um, it's hard for them to, you know, compete in a scale. And Walmart is pushing so much of money into their online presence. That, are they? Yeah. They, I mean, people are buying stuff online, man. Like, they've got to work on that. So, anyway, that's that's a, a thought experiment. If you have a thought about that, let us know. Um, I'm conflicted, but I guess I'd rather, you know, cut off the arm to save the patient kind of situation. I don't know. I'm very conflicted. <laughs> As you can I just tell. can't decide. I know it's right. It's so right. What, which of my bourgeois liberal ideals am I going to am I going to sacrifice? Can, can like IKEA or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who. Yeah, who would we? Uh, who would? Who would? Who's the friendliest? Uh, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods. <laughs> Whole Foods. Well, Trader Joe's is owned by Aldi, isn't it? That like German. Is that right? I think. I think don't that's true. I think I just Aldi's. Uh, Amanda who um, runs most of our food riot operations, foodriot.com. I don't know if we talk about that. We have a, a sister site, foodriot.com. This is a good time to plug it. Um, <laughs> you were saying there, you, you hit me with a couple that really hit me in the gut this week. One was that all the fruit loops are the same flavor. They are. They're just different Your colors. Was a lie. Uh, which I don't like that. I don't like that at all. And the other one was that a large, what was the drink you said? Do you remember? One of the Starbucks drinks. Oh, oh, um. 
It's a large Aventi. So white, cho- white hot chocolate. A, a Aventi white. white hot chocolate has more saturated fat than a bucket, a six peat bucket of Kentucky okay, fried chicken. Isn't that insane? <laughs> I just have this. I mean, I just have this image of like drinking a chicken latte. It's so gross. I'm like, oh my god. Because <laughs> there's one thing I love fried chicken, and I eat it from time to time. I'm not KFC that often. I have to admit, though. I will, you know, I dabble. But there's something when you're eating a bite of, you know, eating fried chicken, you just you can just feel how bad it is for you. In like your arteries. Yeah, like just your soul is like, oh, that is so bad for me. But that's part of the pleasure, right? Like it's if you're eating fried chicken, you're like I wonder how you know I'm on a diet or something. Like it's part of the pleasure. Well, on Twitter, I think it was uh, Tim from Library Thing said that obviously the real solution here is to stop drinking the white hot chocolate and just go eat more fried just chicken. Just go. I, you know what? Exactly. Right. <laughs> like obviously that's what you're yeah. Doing. Go have uh, anyway. So I don't know how we got onto this. Oh, Aldi, yeah, Joe's. surprises that I'm surprised. Bourgeois. It's bourgeois, yeah. Now I, now I can't stop for Trader Joe's. <laughs> All right, let's do a few new books. Usually this is Rebecca's domain, but we're going to fill in the best we can. Uh, Carthage by Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates has a new book out this week. These are all available now, so you can go check them out. Um, this is a story, a small town, a young girl disappears. Um, it's kind of in the Joyce Carol Oates wheelhouse of dread and violence and suspicion and mystery and anxiety in a small town. A little bit of a twist here is that the the father of the family um, is just returned from overseas combat. And so he's both dealing with that and that his daughter is missing. Um, I don't know if a lot of people have read Joyce Carol's. I think it's one of those people that she has so many books that people are just like completely like, I have no idea where to start on this buffet. Um, but this one's been getting good reviews, and it does sound like something that Joyce Carolitz does very well, which is a community, a family, a small story, um, but with you know large ramifications. I think probably her most famous book, uh, most read book, was We Were the Mulvaney's, um, which is kind of a similar setup, but it's, a, it's a, a sexual assault rather than a disappearance. That was an Oprah's book club picked way back in the day. Um, but you know, Oates is this is the kind of thing she's she's really good at. So if you're a Oates fan. Um, or looking to pick up oats, I think this would be a good one to pick up. All right, uh, Amanda, tell us about another one. Okay, the next one is The Crane Wife by Patrick Ness. Um, I actually have read this. Patrick Ness wrote the series The Knife of Never Letting Go, um, but this is sounds like a complete departure. I didn't yeah. read The Knife of Letting, Never I Letting have, Go. I have, and I liked it. It's long, but really fascinating, so tell us And it's, it's like dystopia, right? Yeah, well, it's okay. a different planet, so it's like, is oh. it dystopia if you're in a different planet? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, this is this is on Earth in England, um, and it's it's kind of like this. It's a whimsical, fairy tellish, magical realism retelling of a Japanese uh, fable. Um, so this the story is about um, like a really very plain and ordinary, boring guy um, who, in the middle of the night, is awakened by a giant white crane uh, with a wing through an arrow through his wing, crashing in his backyard, and he saves the crane. And then the next day at work. Um, this beautiful, mysterious woman appears on his doorstep. And they get involved in this kind of whirlwind affair. And while they are falling in love, she tells him this story of a crane that... Oh, this is so hard to explain. <laughs> just go. Cra- just, it just sounds go. so strange yeah, yeah. I'm saying it out loud. A crane whose purpose it is is to help um, forgive everyone on Earth of their sins, essentially. Oh, okay, gotcha. And she falls in love with a volcano whose purpose is to destroy the world. Oh, man, we're like in deep allegory mythology So here. deep, yeah. so deep. And so while she's telling him this story, as their relationship gets deeper, you kind of start to suspect that maybe she is the crane wife, maybe, sort mm-hmm. of, you don't really know. Um, and there's also a subplot about the man's daughter, and um, she has a very hard heart, and then she meets his new, whatever, love. And there's mm. a whole sub-thing happening there. Anyway, it's very allegorical. But it's it's very sweet and magical and oddly funny. Cool. I think I'm going to read this. It's I, he's he's got a weird brain on him, and I like it. Yeah, it's uh, weird. I would Patrick never Ness. think, ooh, weird, depressing Japanese folklore. <laughs> Let's retell it in England, yay! Yeah. <laughs> but it totally works. So that's the Crane Wife by Patrick Ness. Uh, one more. Um, it's called "What Makes This Book So Great" by Joe Walton. Joe Walton um, is an author, but this is a collection of, it's 130 essays, which sounds super daunting, but it's not because it's a collection of her, I mean, it's a long book, 448 um, pages, but it's a collection of the 
column she's written for tour.com, which is a sci-fi and fantasy site. Um, and she, they're these great pieces that she writes about what she's reading. She's a sci-fi fantasy writer. She's a sci-fi fantasy fan, super smart, covering a range of books from Samuel Delaney to um, Ursula K. Le Guin, Robert Heinlein. Uh, and then some, if you're, you know, those are things that people like me who are just sort of dabble in sci-fi, kind of the top level stuff. But then a lot of stuff that, you know, if you're really into sci-fi and fantasy, uh, you should check her out and her thoughts and thinking. Not not a genre that gets a lot of the kind of attention that, say, literary fiction does. Or even YA these days in terms of think pieces and thinking seriously um, about what the books are about and what's going on in them. But she's someone that I regularly read online. And this would be a great pick if you... Um, read science, science, science fiction and fantasy, you can tell since there's 130 essays and there's only 450 pages, they're only a couple pages a piece. So you can dip out, dip in and out of it. Um, I haven't read the whole thing. I've read some excerpts, um, but I think I might uh, download the whole thing. It's good for those little weird pieces of time on my phone where I've got a few minutes to read something else. So those are the new books this week. And I think that's our show. You made it. it Yay. Yay. Doesn't it go fast? It does. It I goes survive. amazingly survive. fast. So you can find us. Um, I'm at Reading Ape on Twitter. Amanda is at Dead White Guys on Twitter. You can follow her there. She is much funnier than I am on Twitter. It's, it, it constantly um, irks Snarkier me is how much funnier and better at Twitter she is than I. Um, you can check her out. She does critical linking on the weekend. Saturday and Sunday, Amanda does critical linking. I do it during the week on bookriot.com. That's where we do our morning roundup. Publishes every morning at 6 a.m. of what we found that's interesting out in the book world. A lot of those links make it into the show. Um, let's see. You give us feedback. We wanted to hear, let's see, we wanted to hear what? Oh, your favorite audiobook. Yes. Podcast at bookriot.com. Give us some recommendations. Check out Dear Book Nerd. You can search for it. Dear Book Nerd Podcast. Just in Google, we'll get you there. I was just checking a few minutes ago that you could find it that way. Check out foodriot.com. See what's going on there. We do a lot of the same kind of stuff. We with Book Riot try to have fun with food writing. Um, and our Who doesn't lives. love food? Who doesn't love food? Uh, <laughs> let's see. If you want to rate us on the iTunes, that's a great way to help the show. Both Dear Book Nerd and Book Riot, the podcast, can use your ratings review. That's, that's really great. Subscribe to the show as well. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for Amanda. We're going to have to have you back. Yeah. You come back. You're not too scared. It went no, well no. enough. I'm old hat now. Oh, yeah, that's right. You got one under your belt. That's the hardest thing it. to do. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you later.